First Kings. Chapter 18. We have been building and building and building to this moment. And this is the moment on Mount Carmel where Elijah is going to pray after there's a, a confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And he is going to call down fire from heaven. Probably most people, if you've come to Sunday school at any point in your life when you were a child, spent any time in church, you've heard this account. It's a fairly famous account from the Old Testament, and we're going to look at it this morning. Before we go there, I want to read you an article that I came across this week that has to do with this passage of Scripture. And so it's not very long. It's maybe about a half a piece of paper here. I'm going to read this, and I just want you to, to listen. It says, a coalition of seeker-sensitive pastors released a statement Thursday condemning the prophet Elijah for not using more seeker-friendly methods in his prophetic ministry. Elijah's heart, quote, Elijah's heart was in the right place, but we're not sure that calling down fire from heaven and then hacking God's enemies to pieces was the best church growth strategy. He pointed to a whiteboard containing the acronym GROWTH, and he said, see, nowhere in this handy acronym does it say, slay all the prophets of Baal. They heavily criticized Elijah's mocking of Baal as well. Quote, we cringed as we read the account of Elijah asking whether or not Baal was in the bathroom. A more pragmatic, effective method would have been to come alongside the prophets of Baal and ask if they had any first world problems that Yahweh could resolve for them. Then, Elijah could have sucker punched them with an altar call. Bam! Instant converts. One prominent seeker-sensitive guru suggested that Elijah should have set out tables with free donuts and coffee to lure in the prophets of Baal before preaching to them. Quote, add a free visitor's kit with swag would have worked wonders, he added. At publishing time, a conference discussing the decidedly non-seeker-sensitive methods of Elijah's successor, Elisha, had also been announced. The name of the conference is, quote, why your church should avoid using bears to attract visitors if you're familiar at all with the account of Elijah. That's fake. Okay, that article was not real. There was, not, there was no conference. But we can almost imagine it, couldn't we? There are those that would read that and kind of go, it kind of sounds very similar to how people in churches today, or there are certain folks today, would confront sin and apathy in our culture. In many ways, the reason why that kind of is humorous is because it's not that far off the mark. The way we approach it a lot today is very different from what we're about to read here in the account in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not knocking people that we, we have donuts sometimes. I kind of like the weeks that we have donuts and, and juice and coffee and all of that. I, there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's the, the method, if we're sitting there basically creating a social organization where we come along people and say, God is really something you add to your life to help you. You know, if your car doesn't start and he starts your car for you or, you know, gives you a good warning or that, that's about it. We're missing it. Elijah is going to do, he's going to confront sin and apathy. If you remember last week, I talked about Obadiah. Obadiah was a, a guy, he, he was a follower of, of, of Yahweh. Quite clearly, he was obedient. He was trying to be faithful. And we asked the question, will he persevere? Will he remain true? We had Ahab, who had blamed everyone else for the problems of Israel. Now he's going to get confronted. We also had just the people. They were on the fence. Were they going to go with God? Or were they going to go with the prophets of Baal? There's a moment of confrontation, a moment of reality, and that's what we face today. I mean, confrontation isn't easy for most people. I mean, some of you may love it. I mean, there are, some of you are married to somebody who loves confrontation, and they just, 
argue all the time. I see a few of these. But for most people, confrontation is not exciting. It's not something they look forward to. But for followers of Jesus Christ, it's just part of what we do. I mean, the gospel message starts out with letting people know if they don't already know, you're a sinner and you fall short of the glory of God. You don't measure up. You're not good enough. You cannot earn your way to heaven. And you have to be confronted with the reality that in and of yourself, you're destined to go to hell. That's not the most, the nicest thing that you can share with somebody. But it's true. And that's what we're called to do, but it's not easy. So what we see here is as Elijah gets to this point on Mount Carmel, he's going to approach all of these people and confront them with the reality. And then we're going to see how God responds to it. It gives us some principles. It gives us some of the things that we can do and imply in our lives as we go out and confront a world and a culture, people at our jobs, people at our schools, people that we come across day in and day out. A world enmeshed in sin. So I'm going to begin in verse 22. Go ahead and stand. I know there's a lot of verses here, but go ahead and stand in the honor of God's word. If you can't, that's all right. There's a lot here. But I'm going to begin in verse 22 of chapter 18 of 1 Kings. It says, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. You call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he's God. And the people said, it's well spoken. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep. You've got to wake him up. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar that the, of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seeds of seed, put the wood in the order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. He said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the offering. Do it a second time. They did it a second time. And he said a third time, and they did it a third. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. They seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon. 
and slaughtered them there. Lord, I thank you for the reading of your word. I thank you for this great account that you have memorialized for us. And Lord, I pray that we see how Elijah's example, and Lord, we apply it in our own lives. In your name I pray, amen. Have a seat. So as we biblically confront sin and apathy in our culture, in our churches sometimes, and in our lives, day in and day out, we see some, some principles here. There's really four of them. The first two are things we shouldn't do, and then the second two are some things that we need to apply. So the first one that I want to look at when, when we're confronting sin and apathy is, is don't be intimidated by the size of the crowd. The first thing Elijah points out is that he is greatly outnumbered. Elijah said to the people, I'm alone. I am left of the prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Earlier, there were 400 prophets to Asherah. We're not sure what happened to those prophets. They apparently aren't there. But he's outnumbered. Obadiah had kept alive 100 prophets of the Lord. But they were just doing all they could to stay alive, if you remember. They were hidden in caves and just being fed. And it was really, Elijah was it. And so he points out to the people, listen, I'm alone. And they were aware of that. But it was more than just the sheer numbers. It was the entirety of the, the culture. If you remember, I said after, after Solomon, the nation, after Rehoboam, the nation split into two. This is the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom had nothing but wicked kings. They had bad guys. And each king was worse than the one before. Ahab, if you remember, in chapter 16, the Bible said he was the worst of the worst. He was married to Jezebel who was horrific, and they were trying to completely wipe out uh, Yahweh worship, Jehovah worship in the northern kingdom. And so for 60 to 100 years, for, for this culture had just gotten worse and worse and worse. So Elijah is not just alone uh, against 450 guys. He's alone against 450 guys and a culture that had, for the better part of two or three generations, gotten further and further and further from God. And so he's outnumbered. And it kind of sounds similar to some of the situation that we find. We're not quite that bad. We're not one against everybody. But we are part of a culture that we kind of see as getting worse and worse and further and further from God. There are ways in which our culture is getting further and further from any sort of foundation where they would hear what we have to say. And so Elijah is, is pointing out something that we see throughout Scripture is we're often, almost always, outnumbered. I mean, Joseph was outnumbered when he was in Egypt. David was outnumbered when he was first called. Joshua and, and Caleb, when they were, they were the spies, they were the only two that stayed faithful. In the New Testament, if you remember when I preached through First Peter, the Christians were, were blamed for burning down Rome. They were blamed for being cannibals because they practiced the Lord's Supper and people thought they were actually eating somebody. They were often the minority. A few, uh, last week, I shared about Martin Luther when he nailed the 95 or 99 thesis to the door that sparked the Protestant Reformation. When he did that, his main reason was he was mad at the practice of indulgences. Indulgences were the, the, the practice where basically you could just pay your way into heaven. If you had enough money, you could do whatever you wanted to do. Just donate a larger money, amount of money to the church and they would, whatever they do, absolve you of your sins. And so throughout history, whether you go just even into the 1800s, there were Christians, those that genuinely followed the word of God, genuinely were obedient to the cause of Christ, are almost always outnumbered. And the reason why I share that, the reason why I point that out is quite simply this. If we are waiting until the timing is perfect, 
that by human standards, people are ready to hear the message, then we're going to wait forever. You're never going to enter an instance as a follower of Christ where, humanly speaking, things are going, you're on, on, on top. You're going to be the underdog. Now, we all remember it doesn't matter, humanly speaking, that we're the underdog. But it does, in our own minds, kind of intimidate us. But Elijah points it out. He shows us here the way. Listen, there's 450 of them, a complete and total cultural meltdown to follow Baal. But if we have one guy that's obedient to follow Christ, things can change. Don't be intimidated by the size of the crowd. The second point of what we don't do is don't be intimidated. Or sorry, don't mistake conviction with orthodoxy. Don't mistake conviction with orthodoxy. What I mean by that is just because people have strong convictions doesn't mean they're correct. Elijah sets up this contest, right? You know, you guys, the prophets of Baal, you make your altar and, and you try and get your God to turn, set it on fire. And they say, good idea. And then when you read through what they do, they seem very convinced of their way, don't they? I mean, they build it up and they start dancing around. I'm not going to dance for you, but they start dancing around for hours and hours trying to get Baal to set this thing on fire. And Elijah comes along and can't help himself. He has to start making fun of him a little bit, asking if he's going to the bathroom or if he's on vacation, which these are actual things that Baal did according to the people that followed him. But then you get down to verse 28. It says, as they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until what? The blood gushed out upon them. It's a pretty descriptive verse. I've been fixing a fence at my house over the past couple of days, and I get about 14 splinters a day because my fence is kind of rotten. And when I grab the wood, it slides just a little bit. And I got these, it bleeds just a little bit. And it hurts. But the way this is described, these guys would take knives and dig into their skin until the blood flowed out. That's pretty dedicated. Some of them would get so into this, some of them could die from bleeding out. I mean, we can't deny the fact that they were really, they really believed what they thought here. How does that apply to us today? Well, part of the problem is, is we live in a culture that increasingly is just pluralistic, multicultural. We don't want to offend anybody. If you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Last week, I shared about that uh, survey that was taken, a theological survey. Some of you may have looked it up, but the question that was posed that I brought up last week, they asked evangelical Christians. These are, are people that claim to follow Jesus Christ. And the question was, does God accept the worship of all religions? You remember this? I see a few heads. Okay. And 50% of, of people who call themselves evangelical Christians said Yes. God accepts the religion of, or the worship of all religions, Buddhism, Islam, whatever. It was a scary thing to hear. I mean, really, people that go to church sit there week after week, read these passages, and they say it doesn't really matter. I mean, does he accept the worship of Baal? And we would laugh, say, of course not, but how is that a whole lot different than what we're talking about today? What has happened is, is, is orthodoxy, which is just a fancy word for believing the right thing, is falling out of favor even in our churches. We don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And so when people believe, you believe what you want, and, and people are becoming increasingly biblically illiterate. They don't know what the Bible says about these things. Let me give you an example. Go ahead and put the pictures up. Hopefully this works. Okay, good. 
I want you to look at these people. Some of them you may know, some of you don't. All right, on the left, we have Donald Trump and Barack Obama. Everybody know who that is, right? I hope so. Maybe you don't. Then you have Nancy Pelosi and Paul Ryan. That's those. Well, Paul Ryan is the Speaker of the House. Probably in January, Nancy Pelosi will be the Speaker of the House. Now, the next ones you may not know, the, the one on the top is Franklin Graham. You know who that is? That's Billy Graham's son. Below that, probably a lot of you have no idea who this is, but this is a woman named Robin Henderson Espinoza. She's a Latinx pastor out in California, has written some books and that kind of thing. Then you have Lady Gaga. Does everybody know Lady Gaga? She's a singer, musician, actress, wore a side of beef to a con- you know, that's what she- she's a little different, but there you go. Below that, you have Chris Tomlin. Chris Tomlin is a Christian musician. We sing some of his songs here on Sunday morning. Who's that next good-looking guy? That's me. Okay, that's, that's, that's me. The reason I added me is so you can't say all these people are famous. But here's the question. What do all these people have in common? Okay, this, they're going to die. Yeah, they're sinners. They're, all right, nobody said it yet. Out there, they all claim to be Christians. Every one of them claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, don't answer out loud. Is that true? You're supposed to answer out loud. Is that true? And if no, why not? And the bigger question is, who is and who isn't? And the reason why I ask that is we live in a culture where people who, and you know enough about most of these people, they don't believe the same things, do they? They have very diametrically opposed positions on a host of issues. But yet they all claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. And our job, is, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're somebody who reads the word of God, is to know who is and isn't. Who's genuine, who's not. Why or why not? I mean, if we're going to confront a world who is caught up in sin and apathy and indifferent, if we don't know what we're talking about, if, if, if you can have the, the different types of beliefs of all of these people, then what difference does it make? Worship Baal, worship Yahweh, who cares? But we know that's not true. And the world needs followers of people that are in the word, people that are studying the word of God to know what it says to, to call out sin, to call out apathy, to call out where it's not right, just like Elijah. We can't be those people that sit there and say, you, you believe what you want, I'll believe what I we'll all just get along. That's how people go to hell. Paul didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. Peter didn't do that. Spurgeon didn't do that. Billy Graham didn't do that. We are called to be salt and light in this world. So we don't, those are the two don'ts. Don't be intimidated by the size of the crowd. Don't mistake their conviction with orthodoxy. Now, what do we do? Let's move to what Elijah does beginning in verse 30. The first thing, go to the truth of the word of God. What does Elijah do? He calls all the people around. He says, come over here. They all gather around. And notice what he does. He repairs the altar of the Lord. And there are some details in here that you might read over, but you got to remember the situation. He takes 12 stones. How many stones? Say it. 12 stones. Now, if you remember what I said, I have told you about the history of this country. What had happened a couple generations before this? They'd split the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were part of the southern kingdom called Judah. 
The northern kingdom, which is who we're focused on here, that's where the other 10 tribes went. So there are only 10 tribes really here at this particular point. But so does, does Elijah make an altar with just 10 stones? He makes it with all 12. He makes an altar. He rebuilds the altar that they were, that reminded them of who they were. What God had created in that covenant with, with, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, who his name was changed to Israel. And so he rebuilds this with all 12 stones. And then what does it say there at the end of verse 31? It says, well, verse 31, Elijah took the 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. The northern kingdom went by the name of Israel. The southern kingdom went by the name of Judah. The northern kingdom had co-opted the name to say, that's, that's who we are. And the writer here is reminding them, no, all 12 tribes are Israel. And you got that name. You didn't come up with it yourself. Who gave it to you? The Lord. So Elijah, before he does anything, as he puts this stuff together, he, he reminds them of who they were and what God had done. I would imagine looking at this, this time frame, it seemed rather hopeless. The nation had split itself into two, two groups. They fought against each other. Yahweh worship was on its way out. Jezebel is, is about to wipe it out. The only prophets that they had were hiding. It seemed hopeless. The culture had seemed lost. It seemed pointless. And there are times as we live our Christian life and we look out, we wake up, we read the newspaper, watch TV, we look at our culture and we go, it's hopeless. Why bother? I'm just going to kind of do my thing, live to follow God and realize it's all going to fall apart. And I would imagine there's a sense of that with Elijah. And humanly speaking, he's right. It's going to fall apart. There is no hope. Elijah himself is not going to fix it. But he does. He brings the people back so that they see the beginning of the covenant. Let's build the stones, all 12 of them. I remind you who gave your name. Remind you who you are. He takes them to the truth. Why does he do that? Well, he then, of course pour water on it they probably went down to the mediterranean sea or wherever to get the water and just they, they dumped the water on it so that when it catches on fire everybody knows it's not fake so he fills it up and it's just soaked with water so much so that this trench around it is just teeming with water and then he prays look at what he says at the prayer verse 36 he says oh lord now up until this point if you read every time elijah talks about god he says my god until here he says, O Lord, God of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He takes them back to that foundational beginning. He recognizes, listen, I don't worship a local God that can just, you know, fix a problem here or there. I go to the God of all eternity. I go to the God that created the world, that created this people. We can sometimes get intimidated by our world and our culture. We can get caught up in, in, in just it seems kind of, I mean, this week with the elections and everything that's going on, it just seems out of control. We worship a God that he wasn't surprised about anything that happened. He knows who's leading. He knows who's going to lead 10 years from now. He knows where our country's headed. I read an interesting quote from Adrian Rogers that said this, Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? There's truth to that. He's not surprised about anything. He knows what's coming. He was not surprised that the people had abandoned him. It didn't come as a shock here. And he reminds him when he prays. He said, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He made a covenant with you. He's going to, I mean, we're going to mess it up. The people are going to mess it up. He's going to fix it when he sends his son. He's got it under control. 
Then he, he reminds them that it's not him. He's the one that's not going to save it. He says, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. He's saying, listen, it's not, I didn't come up with this idea of making the two altars and the fire coming down and all that. He said, I'm just doing what God has told me to do. Our power doesn't come from our, our ingenious thoughts. You're not so brilliant. I'm not so brilliant that we're going to, on our own power, convince the world to follow us and be obedient and do all those things. You know, we're not going to tweak the laws just so, so everybody will be moral and do the right things. Our job is to present the word, the truth of the word of God to people, to confront them with this. Which brings to the final key point. And that is recognize the power to change. Recognize only God has the power to truly change people. Only God does. Look at the last thing he says in this prayer. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, what? Our God. You have turned their hearts back. He prays and he says, listen, it's not their own power. They're desperate, wicked sinners. It's the power of God to change them. Let them know repentance comes at the initiation of God the Father through the Holy Spirit convicting us to follow Christ. The fire then comes down, yes, consumes the altar, burns everything up. There's absolutely no doubt. It's a great miracle, isn't it? It's nothing compared to when God saves a sinner. You see, in the New Testament, we don't look for fire to come down and consume an altar. When we confront people with sin, that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for the Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin, that they cry out and say, I need a Savior so that we can have this baptism used all the time. Because a heart is changed, a soul is changed, an eternal destiny is changed because somebody has been confronted with the truth of the Word of God and a miracle that no human being can perform is accomplished when they repent of their sins. We went to, uh, I went and Dave Sanders and Sally, we went to this thing in Texas a couple of weeks ago called Home Point. Well, it's a big church in Texas and they have this program called Home Point, which we're going to use here at this church probably starting in January. There'll be some changes to some of the things in the foyer. And really what the, the program is, is, is ways for you to take your faith and employ it at home. Whether you're married with kids or you're single or an empty nester, it's just some practical things. Because a lot of people, they come to church, they hear the pastor preach, and they go home, and they never talk about their faith again. That's what it's all about. That's my little quick commercial here. That's not really what I want to talk about in the sermon. We went there, and the guy that had designed this or kind of come up with it, he talked about this church in particular. It was a huge church just outside of Dallas. Probably over 10,000 people attended this church. And he said, when you go there, and we were there, it's an impressive place. They have a room just to baptize people. It's like a pool in this, you know, they have chairs just for that. They have like rocks and a waterfall. And you're like, wow, you know. And right outside of that was the children's department. And they had two stories, you know, first floor, second floor. And the kids that were on the second floor, and they, they were the lucky kids, there was a slide that you, the kids, when the kid, parents came to get their kids, they'd get on the slide and come down. It looked like a mine shaft and they'd pop out the end and you're like, catch them. Or no, you didn't have to catch them, but you know, and it just amazing facilities. The room that we met in was called their auxiliary room. It was bigger than this one, and it was just, I don't know what they did with it. Other than the little meeting we had, they just said, we got money, we'll build a building. And this guy said, you know, they have all of this. But is it effectively reaching the culture? He said, not just this church. He could be Cornerstone or any of the churches here in Little Rock. 
We have more money than Christians have ever had in the history of the world. We have better facilities. I mean, we have all of these bright lights and TV screens and big giant screens up here. We have instruments. We have the best curriculum. We have ways of communicating information to people like they've never had before. I mean, we should, by human standards, be setting the world on fire. But it's the exact opposite, isn't it? The culture is changing us more than the other way around. More of the kids that go to church leave it than the kids in the culture come to it. Why? Because I think we're too often relying on our own power. We think it's the fancy lights and the TV screens and all of those things that are really going to change people. When Elijah knew it, answer me, O Lord, that this people know, may know that you are God. You've turned their hearts back. I don't want to finish without the last verse when he goes and he kills all the prophets of Baal. I'm not advocating that we go and kill everybody that we don't like. You know, that would probably not work. But it does let us know the seriousness of this. This was an Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 13 that they were supposed to perform. For us, I, I look at it within the body of believers in the church, the importance of knowing the word of God. When, when false teaching starts to creep in, we confront it. We don't want the culture to continue to change us. We want to change the culture. How? By relying on the power of the word of God and seeing him change people. So what do we do? How do we practically apply this? Before John and they, they, they come up here and sing the final song, let me leave you with this. If you're a sinner, if you're somebody who's never confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord, God is not something you add to your life to help you get through Monday. Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead so that you can have eternity, that you can be made righteous. What those things we sang about, what Bill talked about during the Lord's Supper. And so I would encourage you, turn to Christ. Repent of your sins. After the service is over, I'm down front. Come down and talk to me if you'd like to a little bit more about this. For those that are believers, you need to know the word of God. When I showed those pictures up there of all of those people, and I'm sure everybody had thoughts about who's this, who's that. Were your convictions, when your decisions about who is what, this, that, or the other thing, are they based on the word of God or just your own thoughts and opinions? Do you know the Bible well enough to know what it says? And then finally, we need to pray. We need to pray about our, our, our world that we live in. Even a church the size of Cornerstone, we have a lot of nice stuff. We have a lot of things that would be attractive to people to say, hey, come to this church. But at the end of the day, to see people genuinely changed, are we crying out to God to say, for, save people? Let these people know that you're drawing them back. God, do something in our day. In Elijah's day, yes, it was fire from heaven. I, 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 that's great. I want to see people get saved. I want to see them repent of their sins. God, do something we can't take credit for. There's no way we could, we could account for this. There's no way Elijah could account for the fire coming down. Let's see a work of God in our day that we say, I don't know, it's just him.